This is the second episode of the Historia Obscura miniseries about the Rwandan genocide. If you have not already listened to the first episode, I strongly recommend that you go back and listen to it, as it provides crucial background on the genocide itself. Similarly to the first episode, listener discretion is advised due to the dark subject matter of this miniseries. And once again, may such an event never happen again. December 22nd, 2004, 10 years after the end of the Rwandan genocide, the film Hotel Rwanda hit theaters in the United States. Hotel Rwanda tells the story of Paul Rusesa Bagina, a Hutu hotel manager who sheltered over 1,000 Tutsi in his hotel to protect them from Hutu power militias. Hotel Rwanda was lauded by critics and viewers alike for its powerful depiction of the atrocities in Rwanda as well as Don Cheadle's portrayal of Rusesa Bagina. However, the film also faced heavy criticism from many Rwandans due to its supposed revisionist interpretation of Rusesa Bagina's attitude towards the genocide. He has been described by such critics as, at best, a grifter who exploits the genocide for his own financial gain, and at worst, a terrorist who finances the same Hutu extremist groups that he supposedly protected people from. In fact, Rusesa Bagina is currently in a Rwandan prison, and may well spend the rest of his life there. But as many of his defenders have been quick to point out, he may not actually belong in prison. Instead, it has been theorized that Rusesa Bagina's only crime was having enemies who were too powerful. There isn't exactly a substantial consensus on whether or not Rusesa Bagina is a hero or a monster, and I don't want to force you to think a certain way about him. Instead, I will simply provide the facts of Rusesa Bagina's actions and a few different perspectives on them. But first, it would be improper of me to not also talk about other people who risked their lives in order to save Tutsi from the genocide. It has been well documented that the international community failed Rwanda. The whole idea of a distinct Hutu or Tutsi ethnicity may have actually just been a myth propagated by the German and Belgian empires to divide and conquer by separating the crop farming Hutu from the cattle ranching Tutsi. Belgium in particular enforced Tutsi hegemony over the Hutu for this exact purpose. Belgium also supported the Hutu supremacist government led by Juvenal Habyarimana in the Rwandan civil war prior to his assassination. Arguably even worse was France's support for the Hutu government, which continued during the genocide. In fact, the jet carrying Habyarimana that was shot down was actually a personal gift from French Prime Minister Francois Mitterrand. 77 days into the genocide, the French military was deployed to Rwanda to execute Operation Turquoise, a mission supposedly meant to help refugees flee into Zaire. However, it is likely that the operation was actually intended to prop up Theonest Bagasora's Hutu supremacist government due to close ties between Bagasora and the French government. The United States, meanwhile, supported Kagame and the RPF, but has faced criticism for not intervening to prevent the genocide. During a 2012 visit to Rwanda, former U.S. President Bill Clinton stated that his greatest regret was not coming to the aid of the Tutsi during the Rwandan genocide.
other countries such as Egypt, Israel, and South Africa that faced accusations of providing arms to the Akazu prior to the genocide. As I mentioned in the first episode of the miniseries, many Catholic clergy members took part in the atrocity, and in 2017, Pope Francis issued an official apology on behalf of the Catholic Church for the participation of priests and nuns in the genocide. And of course, the United Nations Assistance Mission in Rwanda, or UNAMIR, has been labeled a decisive failure by most historians. Due to their strict rules of engagement, UN forces did very little to stop the genocide. Still, there were many other people, whether from Rwanda, other countries, or the UN, who did the right thing and bravely stood up for Tutsi whose lives were in danger. I'm going to tell you all about them, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 71st episode of this podcast, as well as the second episode of the miniseries about the Rwandan genocide. If you haven't listened to the first episode of this miniseries, I once again highly recommend you go back and do so. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Lisa Chase, and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. UN peacekeeping force deployed to Rwanda during the genocide lost 27 members in total. The first to be killed were the 10 Belgian soldiers tasked with guarding Rwandan Prime Minister Agatha Uwilingimana after the signing of the Arusha Accords. Louis Plechia, Christophe Dupont, Alain Dibati, Marc Yotebrook, Terry Lotin, Bruno Bassin, Christophe Renoir, Yannick Leroy, Bruno Mio, and Stéphane Loire. After Uwilingimana was shot dead by Akazu soldiers, these peacekeepers were forcibly disarmed before reportedly being castrated, gagged with their own genitalia, and executed. Uwilingimana's children, however, were spared by these soldiers, who instead left them to be murdered by Hutu power militias. But before any militiamen arrived, a Unamir-affiliated Senegalese army officer named Mbaye Diagne arrived at the scene and found the four children hiding in the UN Development Program compound. Diagne hid the children in the backseat of his jeep, smuggled them past Interahamwa checkpoints to Kigali International Airport, and put them on an Air Canada flight to Kenya, saving their lives. Diagne went on to single-handedly rescue as many as 1,000 Tutsi, going as far as to bribe soldiers at checkpoints with alcohol despite being a devout Muslim and to stand in between an armed Hutu priest and a Tutsi woman and successfully convince the priest not to murder the woman. Diagne continued his acts of heroism, often in direct violation of the Unamir rules of engagement, before being killed by RPF mortar fire in May of 1994. The most famous member of Unamir, however, was the mission's commander, Canadian Army Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire. 
Four weeks into the Rwandan genocide, UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali tried to pull the plug on UNAMIR, wanting to prevent any more losses of UN personnel. Believing that it would be immoral for peacekeepers to pull out of Rwanda at the peak of the genocide, Dallaire refused this legal order, and UNAMIR went rogue. Dallaire and a couple hundred peacekeepers continued to protect Tutsi against the army and militias until the end of the genocide. As a result of his insubordination, Dallaire was unceremoniously removed from his position by the UN before returning to Canada a broken man. After struggling for years with a post-traumatic stress disorder, he attempted suicide by overdosing on antidepressants, narrowly surviving after being left comatose for days. Dallaire rebounded, becoming a writer and an advocate for veterans suffering from PTSD before being elected to the Canadian Senate in 2005. He resigned in 2014 in order to focus on his PTSD advocacy, and now lives in Quebec City, where he frequently gives lectures about his experiences in Rwanda. Other foreigners who saved lives during the Rwandan genocide were not affiliated with the UN peacekeeping force. In particular, numerous Italian citizens have been recognized by the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their bravery in saving Tutsi lives. One of the most notable was Pier Antonio Costa, a diplomat working at the Italian embassy in Kigali. Using his diplomatic cachet, Costa assisted over 2,000 Tutsi, including almost 400 children, in leaving Rwanda with forged permits. By the end of the genocide, Costa had a net worth of approximately $1,000 as he had spent over $300,000 of his savings and liquefied over $3 million of business assets to spend on emigration permits for Tutsi and bribes for Interahamwe checkpoint guards. Costa was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 2011 and died peacefully at his vacation home in Germany in January of 2021. Antonia Locatelli, an Italian woman in Rwanda, had a more tragic fate. A Roman Catholic missionary, Locatelli was at the Catholic Church in Niamata in March of 1992 when as many as 400 Tutsi refugees flooded into the church in the hopes of finding safe harbor. Mind you, this was two years prior to the start of the genocide, and it was not known that the government and military were planning to massacre Tutsi. But having previously seen an armed military convoy drive by the church, Locatelli realized that the soldiers were lying in wait in order to kill the Tutsi in a concentrated area. Locatelli warned the refugees to flee from the church, but stayed behind to radio the Belgian embassy, giving the first confirmation that a state-sponsored genocide was in the works. The next day, Rwandan army soldiers entered the church and shot Locatelli to death. Additionally, there was one American citizen who stayed in Rwanda during the genocide. Carl Wilkins, a Seventh-day Adventist missionary from Maryland, lived at a mission in Kigali with his wife and children who fled the country as the genocide began. Fearing for the safety of his Tutsi housekeepers, Wilkins himself stayed behind and offered up his family's home as a refuge for Tutsi. He then moved the operation to the Gisimba Orphanage in Kigali, where he personally guarded hundreds of Tutsi children and adults every night. As the RPF recaptured most of Rwanda, 
Wilkins was recruited to deliver food, water, and medication to refugee camps housing up to 12,000 people. Following the end of the genocide, Wilkins returned to the U.S., and he is now an ordained pastor working in Days Creek, Oregon. lives, many Hutu in Rwanda did the same for their Tutsi fellow countrymen. Many of these acts of heroism occurred on a small scale. One such example was that of Jacqueline Mukonsonera. A registered nurse of Hutu ancestry, Mukonsonera was working at a hospital in Kigali when the genocide broke out in 1994. Her Tutsi colleague, anesthesiologist Yolanda Mukagasana, quickly found herself in danger after her husband, children, and siblings were all murdered by the Interahamwa. Without thinking twice, Mukansanera took Mukagasana to her home and offered her shelter. For 11 days, Mukagasana hid in Mukansanera's kitchen pantry before Mukansanera was able to bribe a soldier and obtain a false identification card for Mukagasana. Thanks to Mukansanera's heroism, both women survived the genocide, and the two remain close friends to this day. A prominent Hutu political dissident who stood up against the Akazu was Andre Sibomana, an investigative journalist and Roman Catholic priest. During the build-up to the genocide, Sibomana rallied tirelessly against the Hutu power movement, which in turn put a target on his back. He narrowly escaped from Kigali as the genocide began, and spent the entirety of the 99 days fighting a guerrilla war against Hutu soldiers in the jungles of Rwanda. After the end of the genocide, Sibamana adopted seven Tutsi orphans before dying from an unspecified illness in 1998. Perhaps the most unique story of a Hutu-saving Tutsi is that of Zura Karuhimbi, an elderly Hutu widow who lived in a small village in southern Rwanda. During the genocide, she took over 100 Tutsi refugees into her two-bedroom home, saving their lives. When Hutu soldiers arrived at her house and ordered her to hand over the Tutsi, she scared them off by pretending to be a witch and threatening to unleash the wrath of God upon them. Karuhimbi would live to the age of 93, dying at her home in 2018. Interestingly, Karuhimbi stated shortly before her death that she had also saved a two-year-old boy from Hutu militants during the 1959 genocide of Tutsi by braiding necklace beads into his hair to disguise him as a girl. According to Karuhimbi, that boy was Paul Kagame. often recognized for saving Tutsi during the Rwandan genocide, Paul Rusesa Bagina. Having been born to a Hutu father and a Tutsi mother, Rusesa Bagina was raised Hutu, possibly with no knowledge of his mother's ethnic background. Rusesa Bagina's wife Tatiana, however, came from a prominent Tutsi family, which put her and their children, as well as Paul Rusesa Bagina himself, due to the perception of being a race traitor, at risk of being killed. Within weeks, Tatiana Rusesabagina's parents and siblings were all murdered by the Interahamwa, with Paul Rusesabagina later saying, quote, We all knew we would die, no question. The only question was how. 
would they chop us in pieces. With their machetes, they would cut your left hand off. Then they would disappear and reappear a few hours later to cut off your right hand. A little later, they would return for your left leg. They went on till you died. They wanted to make you suffer as long as possible. There was one alternative. You could pay soldiers so that they would just shoot you. That's what Tatiana's father did. At the time, Rusesabagina managed the Hotel de Mille Collines, a world-famous resort hotel in Kigali. He turned the hotel into a refuge for Tutsi, allowing 1,268 to pass as Hutu guests at the hotel. When soldiers and militiamen arrived at the hotel, Rusesabagina gave them an outdated guest list, saving the lives of those at the hotel. As the genocide came to a close, Rusesabagina and his family were smuggled into Tanzania by the RPF. Almost instantly, Rusesabagina became a world-renowned figure, especially after Don Cheadle portrayed him in Hotel Rwanda. However, there was also allegedly a darker side to his fame. In 2006, Rusesabagina founded the Party of Democracy in Rwanda, which primarily operates out of San Antonio, Texas, where Rusesabagina resided at the time. The PDR's armed wing has been linked to numerous terrorist attacks, including a shooting on a bus in southern Rwanda that killed two people in June of 2022. Rusesabagina's supporters claim that his connections to terrorism are fabricated by Paul Kagame's regime, as Rusesabagina is one of Kagame's fiercest critics. But it seems that Kagame may have the last laugh, as, in September of 2021, Rusei Sabagina was sentenced to 25 years in a Rwandan prison for terrorism charges. Although a congressional resolution introduced by New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez has condemned Rusei Sabagina's imprisonment, other notable figures see Rusei Sabagina as the criminal that Kagame says he is. In 2011, none other than Romeo Dallaire referred to Hotel Rwanda as, quote, revisionist junk and compared Rusesabagina's fame to Japan's whitewashing of World War II-era war crimes. So as for Paul Rusesabagina, maybe he's a hero who saved over a thousand people during the Rwandan genocide. Or maybe he's a terrorist financier with Rwandan blood on his hands. Make your own judgment. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I honestly could have devoted an episode to each one of these heroes, but I hope you were still able to learn enough about them in this episode. The next episode will be the final part of the Rwandan Genocide miniseries, and it discusses what happened to the genocidaires who committed the genocide. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historia obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.